Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode covers Econet News, Volume 25, Issue Number 11, November 2023. Flanagan's Net Positive, The Highs and Lows of Climate Change. Econet has been packed with good news on climate for many years. We focus on the positive steps while being painfully cognizant of reality. The world is heating up. Great efforts with renewables are falling short of overcoming rising temperatures. China is the world's largest wind and solar power generator, yet it has 306 new coal-fired power plants under construction. The Saudis have an oil sustainability program for energy access in developing markets. In the United States, we will likely extract an all-time high level of 12.9 million barrels of oil of crude oil this year. Natural gas production will hit a record production level too. Thus, the battle to save the planet from the ravages of climate change is only heating up. Moving quickly to protect our basic ecosystems and to scale has been discussed for decades. It's critical now. COP28. Some are sarcastically calling it the Oil Kingdom's Climate Summit, the 28th IPCC Conference of Parties, COP. There was a leak that the UAE had planned to to strike oil and gas deals at the conference. The UAE has been criticized for placing Sultan Al-Jaber, the CEO of the state oil company, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, as president of COP28 in charge of the conference, which began on November 30th. Is the UAE hosting a COP, a thinly veiled public relations ploy? His company is the 12th largest oil company in the world. It is among the 100 major companies responsible for the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions. The United Arab Emirates government has an all-of-the-above energy policy, inclusive of oil and gas. While the UAE has stated that it will be carbon neutral by 2050, it is also stated that this will be this will be done incongruously with a 50% renewable contribution. Hunter Lovins states that the Saudis are making a billion dollars a day for every day that climate action is delayed. Certainly the UAE is also reaping the benefits of oil revenues at the expense of the climate. But good news, fully 97,000 experts and advocates and passionate souls from around the world have registered for the COP. There are delegates from over 200 countries. One of Sultan Ahmad al-Jaber's first actions was unifying the attendees, establishing a fund to help vulnerable countries with climate change. The UAE seeded the so-called loss and damage fund with $100 million that grew that day to $260 million. The UAE also has just commissioned the world's largest single-site solar plant. It's featured in this issue. Of course, these very positive steps are tempered by a new scary reality. For a day, November 17th, the average worldwide temperature was the hottest day on record. On that day, the global average surface temperature was more than 2 degrees higher than pre-industrial levels for the first time since records began. Fortunately, it was a moment in time versus long-term average temperatures. Fortunately, we are not slated to reach that long-term average temperature level until the 2040s or the 2050s. In the U.S., we are making progress, but not fast enough. 
pre-COVID efforts have resulted in a steady decline in greenhouse gas emissions. From 2012 through 2021, U.S. emissions dropped by an average of 1% per year. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the United States is expected to cut emissions by 3% in 2023, reversing two years of flat or increasing emissions. This is positive, especially in light of the economy's 2.5% growth rate, but the cut is half of the 6% annual reduction needed to be on track to slash emissions by 50 to 52% from 2005 baseline levels by 2030 in line with Paris Climate Accord. The reductions are good, but not at the scale required. Inflation Reduction Act provisions will help, but don't expect the legislation to move mountains in its first year, warned a Rodian Group consultant that tracks emissions. Hunter Levins underscores the sobering reality that 2023 will likely be the hottest year ever in human history. There have been a record $25 billion-plus weather disasters this year. These include flooding, droughts, famines, fires, and more. Levins reports that climate change is already costing the world about $16 million per hour. It's time to bend this equation, to invest heavily now. Stanford professor Mark Jacobson suggests that worldwide transition to clean energy will cost around $62 trillion. But that's cheaper than the alternative. And it has a payback. Advanced technologies bear upfront costs, but low operating costs, as they harness free resources, the wind, sun, falling water, waves, tides, and the Earth's heat. The Paris Accord established a goal to limit the increase in global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels and pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. The Dubai delegates must now address this in full. We salute the recent U.S.-China collaboration on climate, led by John Kerry, the President's special envoy on climate. Our countries have a mutual interest in stemming the ravages of climate havoc. Some think that this partnership and the stark state of global climate will drive significant action in Dubai. Let's hope so. Quote of the month. Kindness is the connection that links us all together and strengthens the bonds within our communities, neighborhoods, and families. Rosalind Carter, First Lady of the United States of America. Big Time PV in the United Arab Emirates. In advance of COP28 in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates developed the largest single-site photovoltaic plant in the world. In full sunshine, the 2-gigawatt installation has the equivalent capacity of two nuclear reactors. The plant was inaugurated on November 16th, two weeks before the climate summit. The massive Al-Dafra solar farm is located 22 miles from Abu Dhabi, and is 7.72 square miles in size. It is made up of 4 million bifacial solar panels, and it will eliminate 2.4 million tons of CO2 emissions each year. There were 4,500 workers on site during peak construction, installing 10 megawatts of solar per day. The project was jointly developed by Mazdar, Takwa, the French-owned EDF Renewables, and Jinko Power, a Chinese solar developer. 
The power will be sold through a power purchase agreement, PPA, to Emirates Water and Electric Company. First sustainably fueled transatlantic flight. On November 27th, Virgin Atlantic made history by completing the first transatlantic flight on a commercial airliner using 100% sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. The London to New York flight took eight hours, covering 3,500 miles. The flight represents a major milestone on the path to decarbonizing aviation. Global air travel is 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and its impact is expected to soar as more and more travel is done by planes. SAF comes from many sources, such as biomass in the form of corn stalks and forest residues, hydrogen, and captured CO2. According to Canary Media, nearly all the world's existing supply of SAF comes from hydroprocessed esters and fatty acids, known as HEFA fuels. These are derived from pork fat, beef tallow, and yellow grease collected from restaurants and industrial kitchens. Virgin Atlantic's plane used 60 metric tons of SAF, a mix of HEFA fuel and 12% synthetic aromatic kerosene derived from plant-based sugars. Today, SAF accounts for only 0.1% of aviation fuels. There is very little supply, and engines may need to be retooled to run on 100% SAF. Current regulations allow for a maximum of 50% SAF on commercial revenue flights. The Virgin flight required special approval and was not allowed to carry paying passengers. To spur the development of SAF, the United States has tax credits for airlines that buy SAF. The European Union requires airlines to use them. The EU has a target for 70% SAF by 2050. British regulators plan to require 10% SAF by 2030. Virgin Atlantic won a million-pound prize from the British government for its transatlantic feat. New York's premier building electrification. J.P. Morgan's brand new and stunning headquarters in New York City is taking shape fast. The 1,388-foot skyscraper topping out in November. To build the tower, J.P. Morgan Chase had to buy the air rights from the nearby church and from MSD Capital, the owner of the air rights above Grand Central Terminal. The new building will house 14,000 employees and will include a penthouse conference center. It's a lead platinum facility designed for health and wellness. Joe Allen from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health is proud to have been part of the team that shaped this building. The 2.5 million square foot facility is setting new standards for health and sustainability. The building is New York City's largest all-electric tower, ahead of New York City's ban on the use of natural gas in new construction in 2027 for buildings higher than seven stories. Located at 270 Park Avenue, the new 60-story skyscraper is being built on the site of J.P. Morgan Chase's former headquarters, the Union Carbide Building. Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon expects the new headquarters to lure back its staff into its offices with a super healthy building, a focus on wellness a fitness center, yoga and meditation spaces, a food hall, and lots of plants. Its $3 billion price tag pales in comparison to the company's $129 billion gross profit in 2022.
According to Curbed, the building will be New York City's largest all-electric building. Its heating and cooling accomplished with heat pump systems powered by electricity generated by hydroelectric sources. It features triple-pane, super-efficient glass. Its advanced water storage and reuse systems will reduce water usage by more than 40%. Designers use healthier building materials and double the amount of outside fresh air, which then meets advanced air filtration systems. Air quality will be monitored in real time, including IAQ sampling. The ground level provides two and a half times as much publicly accessible outdoor ground level space as the old building. 1,000-year-old Persian windmills. For those that think that harvesting the wind is a new idea, think not. Windmills have been used for centuries to pump water and grind grain. The Persians of Iran have a history of funneling the wind. They generate torque using drag, not lift. One town in Iran, Nashtifan, has been using wind structures that are 1,000 years old. In Nashtifan, the Earthen windmills are embedded in a massive 65-foot-tall wall that shelters the town. The wall funnels wind through vertical axis mills. Conventional Dutch and U.S. horizontal axis machines need gears to transfer the horizontally generated power to the vertical axis mills. Najdefan is in the arid and windswept plains of northeastern Iran, 20 miles from the Afghanistan border. The wall protects residents from gale-force winds. Made of clay, straw, and wood, many of the two dozen mills there are still in operation. Renaming natural gas. Natural gas sounds pretty benign. The term reminds some of us of a national park. Some say that the first step to phase out natural gas is to change its name. Research has shown that terminology affects perceptions. Examples both in Canada and around the world, suggests that the term fossil gas is catching on. Natural gas has been called fossil gas, methane gas, or simply gas. It is made up of 70 to 90% methane, one of the most dangerous and potent greenhouse gases. Yet the American public looks favorably on natural gas. The term does not portray the origins of the methane gas, nor its impact. Leading the charge to change its name, in official documents, is a former chemical engineer in the coal industry. British Columbia resident Eddie Dearden has been writing letters and showing up at council meetings urging municipalities to change the term natural gas to fossil gas in official documents. While he's gotten some pushback, some municipalities are accepting the new term, like Metro Vancouver. In New York, the term is catching on for climate action planning guiding climate-friendly decisions. Now Dearden has taken his campaign to another level. In a recent letter to BC's Environment and Climate Change Minister, he included a draft of a potential bill called the Fossil Gas Clarification Act of 2023. EV equity. A few weeks ago, I had the honor of facilitating a strategic planning session at the board meeting of Plug-In America, or PIA. PIA is the trade association of EV drivers founded in 2001. Its mission is to accelerate EV adoption. Has it been fulfilled? Is it in need of an update? While there is still plenty of headroom in the adoption of EVs, a new and critical focus 
is on EV equity. How can all drivers, regardless of how much money they have and where they live, experience the benefits of EVs? There was much discussion of finding ways to promote EV equity through policies and incentives and a big focus on filling in the EV charging deserts, those areas without adequate charging. The city of Los Angeles has been a leader in analyzing its path to carbon neutrality. It hired the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, and the University of California at Los Angeles to study its path forward and to present means to cut its carbon footprint to zero. The study concluded that the city would need to invest $87 billion to achieve its net zero goal. A big part of the equation is cars. Making EVs an option for all is critical to the city's success. Los Angeles has been a leader in equitable EV EV adoption. It announced in November that it would strategically deploy electrical vehicle chargers in overlooked areas and that it would offer bigger rebates for the purchase of battery-powered cars in response to a new report that concluded that low-income people were being left behind in the transition to clean energy. City officials said that they would offer qualified residents up to $4,000 to buy used electric vehicles, up from $2,500. The city is also resolute in its commitment to build a network of fast chargers. International Shipping Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, reports that international shipping is responsible for a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. If maritime shipping were a country, EDF claims that it would be the sixth largest country in the world in terms of emissions. Big ships run on bunker fuel, considered the dregs of the oil refining process. There are almost 100,000 such ships, moving 11 billion tons of goods across the world's oceans each year. Shipping is inherently efficient, more so than trucking, train, and certainly plane travel. The United Nations International Maritime Organization has been the leading the charge to clean up shipping. The IMO is working with EDF, which now has earned consultant status. The IMO forged an agreement in July, which called for peak emissions in shipping as soon as possible, and for the shipping sector to be net zero by 2050. The interim target is a 20% reduction by 2030, and at least a 70% reduction by 2040. Ten major shipping lines, including Maersk, Nippon, Yusen Kaisha, and Hapag Lloyd, have made commitments to these targets. In addition to contributing to the climate crisis through its gross emissions, shipping is facing the ravages of climate change itself. More intense storms are damaging ships, In some cases, high seas cause rolls that are pitching huge containers overboard. EDF's Director of Global Shipping is based in London and has a vision for shipping, shifting from one of the most polluting sectors to one of the cleanest. How? There are a number of means to reduce emissions. Better coordination of shipping can result in less time idling outside of ports where ships wait for times to unload and load. When at port, Ships can use power from shore, known as cold ironing, versus idling their polluting engines. The EU Fit for 55 climate package will require certain ships to use shore power by 2030, as is the rule in California. Federal legislation has funded solutions, including $20 billion to reduce climate 
and air pollution from U.S. ports. Major customers of international shipping, including Amazon, Unilever, Target, and IKEA and German retailer Tachibo, have committed to only using cargo ships that have zero emissions by 2040. Newly designed propellers pack a punch. The industry is, is establishing green shipping corridors, specific trade routes that will make it easy for ships to access lower carbon fuels and onshore power. The industry is testing new types of fuels, including ammonia, hydrogen, and methanol. And even wind is now being used to augment conventional fuels, taking shipping back to its oldest form of propulsion. Electric Vehicle National Adoption Rates Associated Press reports that electric vehicle sales are anticipated to constitute 9% of U.S. passenger vehicle sales in 2023, up from 7.3% in 2022. It will be the first time that more than 1 million EVs are sold in the United States in a single year. Atlas Public Policy states that there will be 1.3 to 1.4 million EVs sold this year. The report notes, however, that the U.S. is lagging behind other countries. In Norway, EV sales are 90% of the market. In China, the value is 33%, and in Germany, it's 35%. These values are based on the first six months of the year and are from Bloomberg NEF. The values reflect both battery electric vehicles and plug-in electric vehicles. How are these countries dusting America in EV sales? How do they do it? They do it with tax credits, subsidies, and affordable EV options. While the United States is not leading the charge, progress is still impressive as the market matures and the forces of competition fire up. EV prices are coming down. Tesla has had multiple price reductions this year, forcing other EV makers to do the same. Falling battery costs have been an enabling factor. Still, there are hurdles in widespread EV adoption. Early buyers have generally been wealthy homeowners who can charge their EVs at home with ease and very affordably. For others, the lack of charging infrastructure is a major barrier, as are concerns about EV reliability. Furthermore, EVs still bear a cost premium over ICE vehicles. According to Bloomberg NEF, EVs on average cost $3,826 more than the average new ICE car, going for $51,762 versus 47,936 for their fossil-burning ancestors. China's High-Speed Rail Network The People's Republic of China has the longest and most extensively used high-speed rail network in the world, with 26,000 miles of track at the end of 2022. In fact, China accounts for two-thirds of the world's high-speed railway networks, its trains running at 120 to 220 miles per hour. The trains and tracks are almost exclusively owned by the China Railway Corporation and are branded as China Railway High Speed. High Speed Rail has been developed rapidly in China since the mid-2000s. Currently, the network extends to all provincial-level administrative divisions and Hong Kong, with the exception of Macau. Building continues, and the High Speed Rail network is set to reach 43,000 miles by 2035. Taking Action, The Power of the Increment Americans buy 30 million Christmas trees every holiday season. Imagine if we all bought live potted trees and then planted them next spring.
That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.